0: Welcome to Better News. My name is Michael O'Connell, and uh, you know this is a journalism podcast because it's the end of the year, and what we do at the end of the year in journalism is we look back at some of the highlights of the current year as we get ready for the new year. So what we're going to do today is talk about some of the great work that Better News is doing, the Better News Initiative at the American Press Institute. I'm joined by Kamaria Roberts, the Deputy Director of Local News Transformation, and we're going to talk about some of the great work and some of our favorite episodes and and reports uh, that Better News has put out in 2022. Welcome back to the podcast, Kamaria.
1: Thank you, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. Um, We did this for the first time last year, and I was really excited to be on the show then, and I'm really excited to be on the show now.
0: Well, yeah, and just to remind everybody, this particular podcast is produced in partnership with API to spotlight their Better News Initiative, helping newsrooms to transform themselves. And your role as a deputy director of local news transformation makes you the best person, I think, probably to talk about some of the things that API has been doing this last year. So why don't you tell me what you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, you know, at API, my role, I do a lot of really cool and awesome things. One of those things being working with the Table Stakes Alumni Network. And we do all types of programs and do you know sprints and all kinds of learnings come out of those. And so basically, Better News is a public-facing product that shares widely the learnings and the wins and successes of our Table stakes alumni organizations who have done all types of experiments, whether that's, you know, about digital subscriptions or, you know, gaining trust in communities or, you know, even internal facing things like protecting their journalists from online harassment. And so betternews.org is a place where all of those case studies and interviews and things can be found. And so, you know, in our partnership with you, it's an opportunity to share even more widely the successes of those organizations. And um, the interviews we do and the case studies we publish act as like a playbook almost so that other organizations who want to take on a similar challenge or want to learn from those can try some of those things and have some of that success in their own newsrooms
0: anyone who's listening to this is a regular It's All Journalism subscriber. You know, you know that maybe once or twice a month, you'll on a Tuesday or <laughs> this year we had it on another day. For, that's a whole nother reason for that. But, you know, we produce these episodes with API because actually a lot of the things that they're talking about are things that we do in our regular podcast. We reached this partnership, you know, we're a few years back. We're actually close to wrapping up our fourth season. I can announce that there's going to be a fifth season in 2023. So that's good news. And we're always happy to do that because through our partnership, we're able to, you know, finance everything that we're doing in our regular podcast. For us, that's an important thing, but also it allows us to do that and allows us to have these conversations. And I often find that the interviews that I do for Better News, they're always so fascinating. It's an incredible resource for newsrooms who are struggling to you know identify revenue figure out how to you know reach different types of audiences how to engage better with their audiences so Kamaria tell me what is it we're going to be talking about today
1: yeah so today i've chosen 10 stories that really stood out to me that all were published this year and these i'm not going to say they're the best pieces you know all of these pieces are very near and dear to my heart because i seek these authors and ask them to write these pieces but these 10 pieces that i'm highlighting today are just pieces that I just thought were super interesting and that I personally learned a lot from, and that I think that will resonate with a lot of news organizations and the issues they're facing today.
0: Okay. Well, why don't we start off with the first one? I think we've done, you know, Better News episodes about a lot of these, or we have some coming up in the next month or two, but let's start at number one, start at the top.
1: Yeah. So the title of this piece is called How the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Reaching Black Audiences... Through it's unapologetically ATL newsletter, and I will start this off with a disclaimer saying that I am biased because this is my hometown newspaper. I am from Atlanta, I am an ATLian, and I am subscribed to this newsletter, and I love it. But first of all, this was just a truly fun piece to read. They really get into details of how this newsletter came to fruition, and the interview that you did, Michael, with Nausea. The author of this Better News piece was also just super fun to listen to. You guys had a great rapport going back and forth, so that was also really great. But this is just a truly positive and creative coverage of Atlanta's Black community. And the newsletter is a low link newsletter that doesn't force you to, you know, go back to the site to read the whole story. So it's really great. And I can see how so many people subscribed to their site because of this newsletter. When you read the piece, Naja says it about at the time, about 30% of new AJC.com users entered the audience funnel as a result of signing up for Unapologetically ATL. And it just makes sense to me. I mean, with all of the politics going on in Georgia, all of the, you know, entertainment, all of the news constantly coming out of Atlanta, especially from the Black community, you know, this newsletter just hits on so many things. And I mean, they do something that I am always you know, in favor of newsrooms doing, they work with local creatives. They're working with influencers. They're having them in the newsletter and having them directly promote the stuff on those influencers' social media, which is, you know, great because that is directly tied to their readers' interest. And it even has playlists that different reporters in the newsroom put together and share in the newsletter. So it's just really awesome, informative. And like I said, it's not one of those things where you know you're gonna open it and be forced back to the AJC.com site. You can read the whole thing right there in your inbox, which is really cool. Well, we recognize that our readership was one type of person white people who are middle-aged, and that was the majority of our audience. And we were wondering, well, why is that the case? Are we not making content that appeals to other demographics or do other people not know that we have content that is available and that could be appealing to them? So we started by using the existing data that we had, and that's how we recognize the gap. Like we want more than white middle-class people to engage with our content.
0: That was just a little sample from my interview with Nadja Parker, uh, the newsletter coach for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're going to be sort of sprinkling in these uh, audio clips uh, throughout our interview today. Nadja is a great talker. I I always enjoy talking to people who are comfortable and excited about the work that they're doing. So much about it was so smart about what they were doing. We've done a number of interviews about newsrooms trying to figure out ways to better engage with the community, but also maybe engage with communities that they traditionally don't because their focus in the past has been on, you know, white suburban audience. I encourage people to check out the podcast, but of course check out what Nadja had written for API. The next one I think has to do with 100 Days in Appalachia. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. The title of this piece was How 100 Days in Appalachia Speaks." sustainability while staying true to its mission. This interview to me was just super special because speaking to these two ladies, you can just feel the passion in every word that they say. They are very, very proud of their region and they are very proud of the work they do as they should be. They were called to action when they saw a need. They began their newsroom as a digital pop-up newsroom actually that was born out of the 2016 election when they saw a need to clarify and add contact to national stories that were reducing their region to a handful of narrow stories and i mean they got straight to work with the small but mighty team that they are and they have a great connection to their community most of their writers are freelance writers living and working in appalachia and so i think that being so closely knit to their community they have the opportunity to create content that is, you know, not only what the community wants, but that is with the community. They have a, you know, the community has a direct say in what is published. And I think that is just so awesome. And they use a lot of data and they stay really true to their mission to create content. And, you know, in the the case study they wrote, they told us some of the questions that they asked themselves when they were originally facing a rough spot, trying to figure out how to stay true to their mission. And some of those questions were, well, how many people are returning to our website after an initial initial visit? And what do they look for when they come back? Which content produces sustainability actions like newsletter signups or membership signups and donations? And using the data from that, they were able to stop doing things that they didn't need to be doing and focus on what worked for them. And I think that that's so great because, you know, we're always telling the organizations that we work with, you know, when something isn't working, let it go and focus on what is working, you know, focus on what's keeping people coming back and they did that so naturally and i mean being in table stakes obviously probably helped them but they're just such a such a strong team and i really enjoyed your interview with them as well
0: the point was to say whatever you think you know about our region and whatever you know stereotypes you're deploying or you know reducing you know the narratives here you know we want we want to surprise you so that was an example of sort of challenging people's perceptions and wanting to show how much more complex and diverse the region was. That was one of those funny interviews where I realized when we turned on the microphones and we started talking a little bit before we began recording that I'd actually met both of them like a year or two before I had visited West Virginia University to do and record another podcast and Dana and I had a really long conversation but you know, the 100 Days project that began as a university-incubated collaborative media project, but then, you know, it was released out into the wild, and, you know, it earned uh, you know, a 2021 Edward R. Murrow Award. What we all want to do as journalists, what we all seek to do is create something that's going to have a, a huge impact on your audience, and they clearly are doing that. So, yeah, bravo. I think that's another wonderful one to talk about. What's next? Oh, What else do you want to talk about?
1: Yeah. The number three spot goes to the Des Moines Register measures trust by building relationships. This one was just so interesting to me because every time we're talking to a newsroom about trust in the community, the number one question is, well, how do we measure that? How do we know if we're gaining trust or losing trust? And this story was really interesting to me because it started with Brienne, the Register's chief politics reporter. Being in line for a Trump rally because the Register had been denied press credentials. They'd had them pulled and they still needed to get into the rally so that they could cover it. And while waiting hours in line, you know, Brienne heard from people who were not fans of the Register. However, after, you know, being in line with these people for hours, she was able to make connections and they wanted to check in on her and, you know, read her work and, you know, check her out they were interested in her they hadn't become you know over the course of waiting in line with her fans of the des moines register but they had started to see brienne as a real person and not just the reporter or just someone who is part of an organization that they are not in favor of so once Brian came back to the newsroom and told that story that to them told them that the more that they are able to connect with their community and have them see them as four-dimensional human beings who are not just reporters and who have interests and similarities that was the first thing that sparked the idea for their off-hours newsletter, which is how they are building trust with the community. And this newsletter is not focused on politics, but it's just focused on living in Des Moines and having a great life. And so they spent months conducting research, doing polls and experiments and interviews with experts and you know, talking to their community. And so how they're measuring trust really was just what they called the inbox for something they created in their newsroom and something that worked for them. But it tallies the emails and other direct contacts that the off-hours authors receive after each newsletter, and they're taking in other factors like number of subscribers, you know, interactions with the newsletter on social media, people who paid for the registered subscription after reading the newsletter, etc. But I mean, from just this simple interaction that she had in real life, they were able to really figure out how to connect with an audience that before was not fan of their outlet. And so I think that that is just so important because, you know, we talk a lot about like building trust. And I think it really starts with being in the community. And I know since COVID, it's harder to be places physically, but the more you can as a journalist, leave the newsroom and meet the people who you are covering, meet the communities that you are covering, the better off you're going to have, you know, stronger connections and better off you're going to be able to do your work.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is this goes right to the heart of an issue that a lot of journalists have had to deal with in the last, you know, 4 or 5, you know, 8 years or whatever, that a lot of people just don't trust us. Okay, so from Des Moines we're going south to Arizona. Tell me about the next one.
1: Yeah, so number four is titled How the Arizona Daily Star Created a Solutions Beat to Build Reader Engagement and Better Service Community. And I just have to say that Caitlin, the reporter who authored this piece, as well as Jill, the editor at the Arizona Daily Star. They are just so awesome. I've had the opportunity to work with them in several programs. And I met Caitlin recently at ONA, and she was just fabulous. You can just tell when someone really enjoys their work and they're really passionate about it. And she was just one of those people. So solutions reporting is just really an opportunity to engage with readers and people who aren't your readers, because what they've learned through this beat is that people are eager to engage with reporters. And when they feel like they are, you know, part of the reporting process, I think that definitely keeps people coming back, especially when, you know, that reporting is helping them have a better life or helping them find solutions to the issues they're facing in real life. When Jill, my editor, was speaking at a retirement community a while back, somebody asked her, why do you hate Tucson? And it occurred to her at that point that a lot of people thought that our coverage was skewing too negatively. So instead of cutting back on that investigative reporting, because that is such an important um, part of a news organization, we decided to turn to solutions to kind of balance the scales.
0: This is one of our recent episodes, a great conversation with, with Caitlin Schmidt. I mean, if you listen to her, you can hear the enthusiasm in her approach to her beat. She's an example of something I like to see in, in newsrooms, somebody who comes up with a solution to solve a problem in their newsroom and then sort of becomes a guiding light for you know the editorial direction that the publication is taking. And that's what Caitlin was doing. Tell me about the, the next one, which involves the Salt Lake Tribune.
1: Yeah, this one is how the Salt Lake Tribune developed Mormon land to grow its national audience. Now, this was a piece that I just thought was just really smart. They are in a area, in a region where, you know, there are lots of Mormons and they have had this Mormon land vertical for a while now. However, they realized that a lot of the people interested in the content they produce around Mormon issues and topics aren't interested in their other content. So what they did was they created a Patreon account exclusively for their Mormon land vertical and set it up as a sprint to test it out and see how it worked. They targeted Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Spotify to try and reach people outside of their general subscribers. And they gained a lot of traction, even received a $20,000 grant. So using marketing and swag and all types of things, they were able to grow a huge following for this Patreon. And that Patreon, people are able to support them through that site and not have to put support towards their other content. So, you know, they're only getting Mormon land content. And I think that that was just really smart because, you know, there are lots of people who sign up to news organizations, newsletters, or become subscribers but only because they're interested in one thing whether that is you know religious content or sports or whatever it is so I'm really excited to hear your interview with them. The tiny little successes that we were getting were on our LDS coverage so basically we were just like well if there's anything to be had here with a micro donation experiment it will be on this coverage and that is where the the Mormon land
0: uh, experiment began. And I enjoyed this interview for a couple of different reasons. I spoke to Daniel White and Eve Rickles-Young. And now I'm going to geek out a little bit. Part of the focus of what they're doing is they're promoting a podcast. And obviously, I have an interest in promoting a podcast. But as you said, they identified something that had a huge audience that they could sort of expand on, sort of blow up to become this vertical that was generating revenue to support itself. You know, this one, compared to a lot of the other ones that we, we've we done, talked a lot about marketing and the importance of it. And that's one of those pieces that we don't always shine a light on. Just a lot of great lessons. It's always fun to talk to somebody who is trying out something new, does experiments, you know, measures performance, and then makes smart decisions based on that. The next one is kind of near and dear to, to my heart and also to the uh, It's All Journalism podcast team, I'm going to read the headline, How the Buffalo News Used Social Videos on the Buffalo Bills to Increase Engagement. My wife's from the Buffalo area. We have many connections in our podcast with the Buffalo area. So Western New York is just one of those areas that is near and dear to our hearts. So tell me about what you think.
1: Yeah, no, I was going to say as a former video producer in newsrooms, this is also near and dear to me just because it just warms my heart to see newsrooms embracing not only video, but, you know, with social media in mind. And that's exactly what they did here. You know, they have partnered with a third party company to have some really, you know, nice animations and just really high quality video that they're doing. The Bills are extremely popular team. A lot of people outside of Buffalo are big Bill supporters and they realize like, hey, we're right here. We should be capitalizing on that and we should be the experts. And I think that that's so awesome, especially because when you look to social media, you You have influencers and regular Joe Schmoes and all types of commentators taking the reins on these conversations. But journalists who are legacy journalists who are not traditionally comfortable in front of the camera, they have all of this information, but we're not seeing them as much online. And so Mark, who is the host of the play action series, he just has really great analysis of the games and of the plays and listen, I am no sports person, but even just watching the few videos of the play action series that I did, I was getting into it and I was feeling really excited about everything he was saying. And he just had so much detail. So yeah, this was just a really smart move on their part and partnering with a third party company so that they, they could have a lower lift and have really a high quality, valuable product was just really great. Sometimes I think even your loyal uh, readers can take it a little for granted. Hey, yeah, let's rattle their cage. Hey, this is uh, something we've been doing that y- you should pay attention to. So uh, I think it it highlighted, you know, our content in a really uh, new way that made readers take notice.
0: Everything about it is smart. The promotion of it is smart. the The fact that they're not trying to do everything, and I don't mean that in the sense that they hire somebody to do their production, but they really focus on on like one play. And, you know, Mark is able to use his expertise to sort of expand on that. And, and they create these brief sort of engaging videos that they send out via social media to smart all around the way they're handling it. The next one is a, uh, a story that took place in uh, South Carolina. Tell me about that one.
1: Yeah, this is How Nuestro Estado Built the Spanish-speaking Audience in South Carolina. And this piece was written by... Fernando Soto, who is the CEO and publisher of Nuestro Estado. And when I tell you this is just someone who can do everything, not only because he started this business by himself, but he is just so smart and he is just so motivated when it comes to what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is good for the Spanish speaking community in South Carolina. You know, I talked a little bit earlier about people building a product based out of a need. And that's exactly what Fernando did with Nuestro Estado, you know. There was a time during the COVID-19 health crisis, and then there was also a tropical storm happening in that area, and Fernando realized that the content that was being published by major news outlets was not in Spanish, and they have a huge Spanish-speaking population there who was not getting the information in a timely manner. And this is life-threatening situation where people need to know right then and there what to do. And so at that moment, he decided that he was going to figure out how to share it. And that's when he started to build his news outlet. And so I think that this is just really great. Nuestro Estado has built, or has gained so much momentum and fast. I mean, they were partnering with the state's Department of Health as soon as they got off the ground because they also needed help reaching Spanish speakers. And with a small budget, he was able to do so much. And before you know it, he's working and partnering with so many people. So yeah, I just think that seeing a need and stepping up to the the challenge and then not only being able to help people and do life-changing work, but to be able to, you know, partner with bigger organizations who also have the same need is just so amazing, especially during the, the beginning of the pandemic pandemic, everyone remembers how scary that was. Every single day there was new information and there were numbers that needed to be communicated across people who were not only English speakers. So
0: this guy, he's one of my favorite interviews. His story is so fascinating. He saw a practical need in COVID you know, during the COVID situation. He built a product with the audience in mind. This is the need that needs to be addressed. And then it was once that was up and running, and once he established that there was an audience out there, then it, it became okay, well, then how can I turn this into something, you know, maybe a little bit bigger that, that's actually going to serve this particular community? It's so again, we keep saying smart, but this is so so smart. And we still have a couple more stories to talk about. Again, this is another favorite of mine. Why don't you tell everybody what it is, Kamaria?
1: Yes, I am a huge fan of this newsroom. This piece is called How a One-Pound Bag of Coffee Helped the Keen Sentinel Reduce Its Digital Subscriber Turn. And I mean, I am team keen all the way. They are another small but mighty newsroom. And I mean, here at API, we have all types of programs. And when I tell you, these people always show up and they always show out. So this piece is just really awesome because what they did was, once again, they got in the community, they came out of their newsroom and they partnered with people in their community. So they developed a program that bundled locally produced goods with local businesses and their subscription offers. And you know, as much as I know, the folks love a deal. So, you know, if you can get a better rate on your morning newspaper and a better rate on a locally produced coffee bean supplier why wouldn't you? And I mean, it wasn't just coffee. They tried all different types of products. And it's really funny in the Q&A, the case study, we asked what worked and we asked what didn't work. And under the what didn't work, it's literally two sentences. So was not an attractive gift, <laughs> which I just thought was so funny. But I do remember some of the things that did work with like candy and olive oil stuff. <laughs>
0: You know, we've just had to recognize the fact that digital revenue, digital subscriptions is in our future, and we have to figure out ways to continue to improve um, what we do online. We have to figure out ways of how to expand our reach and our offers, and we have to understand that there will continue to be a transition from print subscriptions to digital over time. It was really hilarious when you told me what this story was about. It's almost like, look, would you subscribe if we gave you a free pound of coffee? And like, sure, I'd do that. At that practical level, it's incredible. But also, this is another example of people experimenting. The coffee worked well. You know, let's try this. Let's try that. Finding the things that worked, finding the things that they could grow on. It's just, again, just so fun. So fun and funny. The next piece has to do something with the Gannett papers in the Atlantic region. When, when did you tell me about that?
1: So, this piece is called How Local Gannett Sites Embrace the Whole Community Approach to Public Safety Stories. This was a really awesome piece because I think that the work that they were doing is something that a lot of newsrooms have done and are still doing. So, their public safety mission emerged locally, then regionally, and then they scaled it nationwide to all of their papers when they realized that their traditional crime reporting was not really serving their audiences in a way that it should. They felt that their newsrooms were accustomed to rewriting press releases from police, prosecutors' offices, and not offering context from the community, no input from victims or families or community members. And as you can imagine, this was, you know, harming the community, especially communities of color or those suffering from mental health issues. And so... They took a lot of critical steps so that they could stop writing solely for spectators and begin to serve the needs of the communities most affected by crime. So what they did was, you know, they stopped publishing, you know, mugshot galleries and stopped using the mugshots altogether unless they totally realized that, you know, there was a public safety issue and it would be in the reader's best interest to publish that. And they also realized and made it publicly and not acknowledged that people of color have been traditionally portrayed negatively in their stories. And you know, they were very clear with their audience that they were trying to, you know, change that. And so I think that a lot of news organizations are doing that. I've seen a lot less mugshot galleries and just police reports published without hearing from the community, too. And I just think this is really important work. And I'm glad that, you know, it started with one newsroom and then it grew into a whole organization effort because of how impactful it was.
0: We didn't actually do a podcast about this particular initiative, but we did in 2022, interview some people from Gannett's Knoxville News Sentinel in Tennessee, you know, this is one of the newsrooms that sort of benefited from that earlier initiative. You know, we'll include a link to that with these other ones. It's certainly worth listening to, but also, you know, clearly check out the uh, Better News report online. And I think we're sort of winding down here to our number 10 story that you want to talk about, Kamaria?
1: Yes, this piece is called How the Oklahoman Changed Its Newsroom's Mindset to Focus on Digital Growth. And when I first talked to the Better News authors, we do sort of a pre-interview. And I spoke with David Dishman, who is the author for this piece. And he was just so funny to me because he wasn't trying to be funny, but he's just like a really straightforward type of person. I could tell he has a great rapport with his reporters and with the folks in his newsroom, because he was like, listen, these guys were stuck on print. They were so print-centric and I had to break them out of that cycle and get them focusing on how we could be a digital first newsroom. And so, you know, he talked to me a little bit about the energy levels in the the room and how much reporters love, you know, talking about being on 1A or, you know, how their story looks in print. But, you know, he had to bring new incentives to them using tools like Parsley and other KPIs that were digitally focused to kind of get the get that camaraderie up for digital, you know, he he had to get them excited about seeing their page view numbers and their digital subscribers. And I think that's just so smart because as a leader and as a manager, you have to know what's important to the people that you are working with and who you are trying to motivate. And David really tapped into how to motivate his team. And I just thought this piece was just so good and so smart because, you know, there are a lot of newsrooms with these super awesome reporters who have done print for decades at this point, and who are less concentrated on digital publishing or digital workflows. And so to hear him, a young editor, talk to his staff and get them excited and get this really to be something that they want to do was really awesome. And, you know, he talked a little bit about like them having softball games and, you know, doing fun things outside of the newsroom, which is also just really refreshing to hear since COVID, I think that there's a lot less connection in newsrooms just amongst the people who work together. But when reading this piece, you can totally tell that he knows the people who he works with and that they have a good relationship. And that was just awesome.
0: I have conversations still with the staffer who might say, I've got a story that would be good for the main section tomorrow. And I try to ask when that happens, well, OK, but what do we need to do to make sure that it performs optimally online? Tell me that first. And then we'll worry about where it goes in the paper at a different time. This story that you're pointing out, this is something that's actually kind of a preview of an upcoming episode. I just did this interview a couple of days ago. Um, It's going to go up after this interview that we have here. I think it's actually probably the next interview after this. This was a really fun interview because... We talk a lot about innovation. We we talk about being creative and, you know, we got to come up with some technical way to measure and experiment something. We have to change, you know, update the technology in our newsroom to adopt new methods, you know, reach whatever solution we're trying to do. But we don't always have conversations about how do you roll that out in a newsroom? And so this podcast episode, it really kind of goes into that area. It's like, you know, how do you motivate your newsroom to people who are so, invested in a print approach to journalism and bring them into 2022 when so many newsrooms have uh, you know had to struggle through that process so it's i think when people hear this they're gonna they're gonna recognize situations in their own newsrooms where they they've had to sort of switch their focus kamaria i think we're at the point where we're wrapping things up i know you know this is the end of the year do you have any resolutions as a journalist as a as a member of api of for the Better News Initiative?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's one common theme when it comes to all of these pieces, despite them being, you know, different and about different challenges, is just do what works, stick to what works, you know, use data to make informed decisions. And when you realize something is not working, don't be emotional, emotionally tied to it. Let it go and try something new, you know? We always encourage people to experiment in newsrooms and that's not something that uh, a lot of journalists are comfortable doing because experimenting hints that you might get it wrong. But, you know, if you are going to fail, fail fast and fail forward. So, yeah, try new things, get comfortable online and doing new things digitally because, hey, it's the future of news. And I mean, print still very much important and it still matters. We've got to be comfortable, you know, juggling and uh, having our stuff published on different platforms. So, yeah, I'm just really excited that we have this opportunity to work with you, Michael, and it's an honor that you give our authors, our Better News authors, another platform to come here and share their wins and successes and, you know, tell their stories to another audience. And I I think that the work that you do is so important because, as we know, local journalism has many things to combat and, you know, telling the wins and successes of our alumni to the broader industry is so important to what we do here at api so i'm looking forward to another year of working with you and another year of interviews and learns learnings and lessons that you'll share with your audience too
0: i'm looking forward to it too because every guest that you have pitched to us has been a been a, a winning interview you know we've said the word smart so many times but you can't get past it these are smart people they have great stories Many of them unusual, you know, a pound of coffee, uh, Bill's football, it kind of runs the gamut. But it's all, again, about learning and sharing experience so that we can all, you know, master these things that are going to make us successful online and, you know, help us to serve our communities better. I, too, appreciate and am honored by the partnership that I have with the American Press Institute, and I'm looking forward to another great year. Thank you for coming on uh, Better News, the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Michael.
0: Thanks for listening to Better News, a co production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.